So um, the, the title of our, of our sermon today is The God Who Is There. The God Who Is There. Um, the God Who Is There is the sole source of, source of wisdom and power, and His kingdom is eternal and universal. Uh, and we want to talk about the characteristics of the kingdom of God. And I think uh, this, this is an interesting chapter. Daniel 2, you could go and have a, like a, round, uh, a round table discussion on this chapter. And man, you'd get some crazy views and some crazy thoughts on this chapter. Uh, some very interesting thoughts on this chapter. Uh, I mean, when you, when you, anytime you get into the realm of dreams and visions in the Bible, you can get to some interesting interpretations and some interesting discussions on it. Um, and I'm going to probably take a safe pass, and we're going to really focus on a major theme that I see in this, in this chapter when it talks about the kingdom of God, and especially wisdom and power. I think that's a major theme going on here that you can almost get so uh, distracted or carried away with the vision of the statue that you forget what the main theme is that God is trying to show us through the book of Daniel or chapter, Daniel chapter 2. And uh, one of the things, I don't know if you're one of these people, but uh, um, I don't know if you love mystery novels or mystery books or mystery genres, mystery movies, mystery TV shows. Uh, I have a, a copy of Sherlock Holmes, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. This is a great little, uh, little book that I bought a while back, and uh, it looks really pretty, doesn't it? Like, it's, it will look really nice on a bookshelf. Um, but Sherlock Holmes, I don't know if you've ever read the short stories for, for Sherlock Holmes. They're great. They're only like 20 pages long, and they're so interesting. I mean, you get to kind of, once you, if you've seen the movies or the TV show Sherlock, you kind of get the idea of where these characters are coming from, what they're based off of. And there's a lot of, uh, you see kind of, you know, Sherlock Holmes's personality and his, yes, being genius and being brilliant, but also his, his socially obscureness and his anti-socialness and kind of his pathologicalness that he is a nut, he's crazy but he's a genius and you see that when you read about Sherlock Holmes and people are obsessed with Sherlock Holmes right if you are aware of just the the amount of entertainment that is being put out just about Sherlock Holmes I don't know if you were a big House MD, House, uh, MD TV show uh, fan, but that show is based off Sherlock Holmes, but just in a different genre, different, different setting and, a, and a being a doctor and not a detective. But in a sense, the show House was a show about Sherlock Holmes. Uh, the show Sherlock with uh, the, the BBC show Sherlock, which is a big, uh, we're big supporters of that at our house. Um, it's a, such an interesting, I mean, it's a different place in the modern 21st century. What would Sherlock be if he had cell phones and a blog? But mysteries are so interesting. People love mysteries. And why do people love mysteries? What is it about the genre of mysteries that people enjoy so well? I think they like the puzzles. Like, the interesting thing about Sherlock Holmes is that, yes, the character of Sherlock Holmes is interesting, but that really isn't why people watch. They watch because they like the puzzles. They like the extreme puzzles that you, when you first watch it in the beginning of the episode, you're like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what the answer to this. And you start to kind of dive into the story and the explanation as Sherlock Holmes looks for clues and, and tries to, to uh, uh, um, affirm his hypothesis. And uh, you just so interested in the, in the puzzles. There's, a, there's an author named John David Mann. He wrote an article, Why Do We Love Mysteries? He says, because there's something more to it. There's something magnetically, irresistibly engaging about mysteries itself, about the process of watching something so artfully concealed that it lies completely hidden, then to be so stealthily revealed.
the thing disclosed at the end has to fulfill two demands. It must be a genuine surprise, something you truly didn't see coming, or inevitable, something that once you see it, you say, of course, that has to be the answer. Mysteries, it's, it's something that's difficult or impossible to understand or explain. It's something that is a puzzle, an enigma, something that, you're, that, you, that needs to be revealed to understand or to know. Um, yeah, I, again, like, mysteries are great. And, and like, again, there's some, some great movies about mysteries. There's a great movie called The uh, Usual Suspects that you get to the end of it, you're like, What? That's the answer to this whole puzzle. And you just talk about it with your friends. You talk about it with the people that you watch with. The, the, the reveal, right? The, the big reveal of why, what the mystery was. It's a, it's a, that's, what, that's the interesting thing about the genre of mysteries. And so what we have in Daniel chapter 2, in a sense, is a mystery. Now, if you've read the book of Daniel, if you've read this whole chapter, you're like, you, you've kind of read it before, you know the answer, it's not a huge surprise. But talk about someone who's never read this before, or if you were actually in the setting, if you were actually one of these wise men, or you were Daniel and his friends, and you were so, you didn't understand, or you didn't know what the answer to the king's dream. So we get to chapter 2 of, of Daniel, verse 1, and just to kind of catch you up. Uh, Daniel and, uh, and his people, Israelites, and have been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar is the great, the great king of the world. He had a, a vast empire, the largest empire uh, at that time. And he had moved a lot of the Israelites uh, to, um, to Babel, Babylon. And uh, he, a lot of the people that he brought with him initially were the royalty, a lot of the upper class, the, the aristocrats of the, uh, the, of the society in Israel. And he brings them to Babylon. And we saw in chapter 1 that they're attempting to, in a sense, uh, institutionalize these young men, including Daniel and his four friends, and how Daniel stood strong, how he didn't, uh, he didn't compromise his identity and he stayed true and faithful to God and how God was faithful to him and honored him. So we get to chapter 2. We see that it's the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 1. And Nebuchadnezzar is having some dreams, it says. It says his spirit was troubled. Meaning that he had some pretty, he had, he had a nightmare. That's hence the first point. The, the first point here is he, there's, a, there's a nightmare. He's had a nightmare. You don't just have a dream that is about about rainbows and uh, candy and about something really fun and happy, that's not something that's going to trouble you, right? A nightmare, like a Freddy Krueger nightmare, that's going to trouble you. That's going to agitate you. That's going to disturb you. It's going to cause you to wake up in a, in a sweat. And, and, and it, says, it says that he had dreams. Most likely he had, a, the, he had the same dream over and over. We don't know how, to what extent or how long he had these dreams, but he had enough of these dreams that it caused him to be very troubled, agitated, disturbed. Now you have to ask the question, what would trouble a king, right? You're the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. What possibly could cause you trouble? It's not, a, it's not financial. I mean, you're the, you're, all the thing around you is gold. It's not something you're worried about money. You're not worried about uh, anything that maybe we would particularly worry about. You know, he's not worried about losing his job, per se. But what would trouble a king? Well, uh, invasion, uh, a potential uh, 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 arrival uh, to his throne, a rival uh, kingdom, a rival empire could be something that would trouble him if he had a dream about it. An assassination, right, being poisoned, 
by his, 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 his servants or by his deputies or his assistants. And a rebellion, maybe people in his kingdom rebelling against him would cause him to be troubled or disturbed. He's worried about his kingdom, right? He's troubled. He sees something in the dream that brings, uh, that he seeks, that it brings trouble to his kingdom. Maybe he's worried about his legacy. What if he didn't have a son? What if he didn't, he was concerned about his throne being eternal? And a lot of these kings saw their sons as basically they were ruling through them, that they saw that they had an eternal throne because they had lineage. They had generations of sons sitting on the throne. Maybe he was concerned about his son, his son's death, if he had a son. A lot of rulers and kings and and presidents and leaders, they worry about their legacy. They they are troubled by their legacy if they are going to have a legacy. Presidents in the United States are always, there's an episode of the West Wing that talks about this, about the president concerned about his legacy. What will people remember me for? What have I accomplished that will cause people to remember me when I die? Leaders worry about this. They are troubled by their legacy. Will they have a legacy? Will their legacy be great? Will it be remembered over generations and, and centuries? So, and dreams for Babylonians, especially, were considered signs or omens about the future. So possibly the same dream experienced repeatedly was something that they took very seriously. It wasn't like, oh, I had a nightmare and you go back to bed. Or I had a nightmare and you tell your your wife, your husband, or your friends about your nightmare just to kind of tell you, oh, I had this crazy nightmare. It's something that they took very seriously because it pointed to the future. It told them about the future. We, uh, this is a repeat from Genesis 41, 7 through 8. We know that Pharaoh had a dream, and it caused him a lot of trouble. In verse 7 of Genesis 41, And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and, a fair, and the Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the musicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams but there was none who could inter, inter, I mean, interpret them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, in Genesis 41, has these dreams about his kingdom, and it causes him to be troubled in his spirit. So these dreams bring a sense of insecurity to the king. Insecurities are something that we understand. We pray about insecurities. We're very knowledgeable about the things that we're insecure about. Maybe what we fear to lose is an insecurity. Maybe it's our family, our ability to do our jobs, our possessions, or something that we fear will be taken away from us or that we'll lose. And so we have insecurities about them. The kings and rulers of empires also had insecurities and things that troubled them about them losing we were remembered by Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The king put his heart and his treasure in his kingdom and the things that he had, has conquered and that he has gained and power and wealth and glory that he has possessed and conquered. And he's, a, he's afraid to lose it. That's what's troubling him. And so we get to the second point of this, this chapter uh, as, as Daniel 2, 2 through 13, which is an impossible task. An impossible task. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar the king has this dream, this nightmare, and so he brings all of his, his wise men, all his magi, all of his, his assistants, his scholars who, who are in his court, he brings them in and he says, he commands them to interpret his dream. But he doesn't say, all right, here's the dream, because they say, well, all right, tell us the dream. But that's not, what, that's not what happens. He says, no, no, you tell me what I dreamed and then give me the interpretation. If you know about the story of uh, Sinophilus, the, the man who cheated death, and because he cheated death, when he, went to, when he went to Hades, he was forced for eternity to roll a rock to the top of the mountain, only to have it rolled back again, as in the picture right here. Uh, and he had this impossible task of pushing this rock up this mountain, knowing that the rock's going to keep falling and falling and falling, and he could never accomplish the task of bringing the rock all the way up the mountain to the summit and putting it to rest. It's an impossible task. And the king of Nebuchadnezzar gives his wise men, his magi, an impossible task, something that they could not accomplish. And here's, here's, what they, here's, what, here's how it usually have gone. The king has a dream, and they basically have a book, right? They have a manual that tells them what each, which symbol or image in the dream, what it represents or what it means. We know this, if you've watched Harry Potter, they have the, their, their, their manual for uh, divination, right? To interpret dreams, interpret visions, to interpret signs, right? And how, you know, if you're from the story, Hermione hates the class because she thinks it's irrational and, and, and unscientific, even though she's in a wizarding school, which is a bit funny. She has an issue, issue with divination. And there's that, there's that, ep, that, that, that scene where, where uh, basically Ron is trying to interpret uh, uh, Harry's uh, cup, right? They had the little like black sludge or tea at the bottom of the cup. And they're supposed to be able to tell a sign about his future from the cup. And it's a picture of a wolf. And uh, so uh, uh, Ron's trying to interpret it. He says, well, the book says that that means you're going to be miserable, but you're going to be happy about it. Like he doesn't really understand how this works. He's trying to just use the book to interpret these visuals or the signs and that's basically what happens in the court. They have a book, their wizarding school manual book, right? And they will read what the image says and say alright, this is what the dream means. But the king's like, I don't want that interpretation. I don't want your school manual. I want you to tell me the dream. I want you to have more insights than the book and tell me what the dream actually is, and then interpret the dream. Well, they, they're literally, this is, this is difficult. It's impossible. It's like a patient who wants a doctor to diagnose his disease or illness without giving any medical history or any symptoms or even giving the opportunity for the doctor to evaluate him or even see him. A doctor wouldn't be able to give a diagnosis. Or even a detective without any evidence of the case or, any, or being able to go to the murder scene and then being expected to be able to solve the case. Or a builder who is asked to build a house according to particular, uh, a particular statistic plan but given no written blueprint to follow. How are they possibly going to be able to build a house that will make the family or the, or the couple happy if the couple won't give them the plans that they have for him to build the building based off of? That's the task that these wise men were given. And their inability to accomplish the impossible task would lead them to, quote, torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid to ruin, the king says. 
I mean, so they're given an impossible task, and they're saying, if you don't accomplish it, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I'm going to kill everyone in your family. I'm going to ruin your house. I'm going to run over your house, and you will be no more. I mean, this is, for, first off, the personality of Nebuchadnezzar, we kind of get a little bit of insight on him. He is extreme, right? He has extreme emotions and extreme actions, Kind of reminds you a little bit of Kim Jong-un, who's in the news a lot lately because of his meeting with, with President Trump. Do you know about Kim Jong-il, uh, un, that he once was enraged, so enraged by a false report given to him by his deputies in North Korea that he killed them, not by shooting them or drowning them or poisoning them, but by shooting anti-aircraft um, rockets at them. So literally, I'm not joking, weapons that you would use to shoot down a metal plane from the sky, they would attach the person to them and then blow them away, literally using a weapon that literally destroys them completely. That's what he does when someone just gives him a false report or falls asleep in a meeting. That's how he reacts. So just to give you a little bit of context or a little bit of understanding of Nebuchadnezzar, that he is one to be full of rage, full of, of violence when upset. It says, and, and the wise men say that the, the, the thing that the king asks is difficult. It says here in, in, uh, in verse 11, uh, the things that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Basically, the wise men are like, we have no answer for you. We do not know how to accomplish what you're asking. You're asking the impossible. Only the gods can answer your, can fulfill your command, and we're not gods. So they basically are, are saying that we're limited. The wisdom, our wisdom is limited. Even Nebuchadnezzar's wisdom and power is limited. He can't answer his own dream. He can't interpret his own dream. He can't accomplish what he wants. He needs the help of others. And these others, these wise men, these magi, are limited in their wisdom. They do not have full wisdom. They are not uh, infinite. They don't have eternal or infinite wisdom. They're just men. How are they going to do what only the gods are able to do? We see the self-admission of the limits of humanity, right? And we think about the political issues of our day, right? The political issues of our day. We've, we've, uh, the greatest minds, maybe not so much now, but the greatest minds have, have been you know, in the government, in the White House, in, in Congress. The best of the best. The Harvard elite, the Yale elite, the, the University of Penn elite, but yet have not been able to solve issues like poverty and health care and war and diseases and hunger. Even the, even the issue with peace in the Middle East, Israel and Palestine, for over 50 years, presidents of the United States have tried to accomplish peace, try to make peace in the Middle East and have failed repeatedly over and over and over again. So... Humanity, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, you have limits to your wisdom. You have limits to your ability. These guys in Nebuchadnezzar's court were the brightest men in the world. They did, they did not have access to the wisdom needed to solve the king's impossible task. They're the best of the best, the right stuff, the, the, they have the goods, they're the nerdiest of the nerdy. And they had nothing. They had nothing to offer the king. 
1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8 says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, we who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The, their wisdom is limited. The rulers of, our, of the age, the, the brightest of the brightest, are limited in their knowledge and their wisdom. They're unable to accomplish the task. They're unable to answer the question. And so, therefore, they were commanded. That, and we see this in verse, um, in verse 12 of Daniel 2, that the, the king was so angry and so furious that he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed be killed. Since they were unable to fulfill the king's impossible task, they had no hope of surviving. I mean, they had nothing. They had no way of solving the issue. They could not tell the king his dream. They had no source. They had no refuge. They had nowhere to go. They had no secret plan. They had nothing. They had nothing. And they had no hope. And the king was going to kill them all. So we get to the third point. Daniel 2, 14 through 30, a prayer meeting. So simple. They had a, there's a prayer meeting. So this is a little bit of a story. Um, in Brook, Brookshire Mountains in Williams, Williamstown, Massachusetts, there's a college called Williams College. And this college is probably insignificant to you. You've probably never heard of this college. Uh, it's not like it's, it's, a, it's a Division I uh, football college that plays football or basketball. They've never been in the Final Four or the, or the Sweet 16. Um, they're not an Ivy League school. But Williams College is a, actually a famous school. There's something major that happened at this college in 1806. In 1806, there were five friends who were students at uh, Williams College. One was called Samuel Mills, Adoniram Judson, and Luther Rice. And there were, there was these five friends, and they, they were, uh, were going to pray with one of them. They started a kind of a prayer meeting, a regular prayer meeting. And there was a thunderstorm that happened while they were out walking, and they hid under some haystacks in a field in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And they prayed. And they prayed because they had an impossible task before them. They understood the lostness of the world. They saw the, the nations, especially the heathen nations of the world, like India and Burma and other nations around the world who did, had no access to the gospel, had no access to the Bible, had no access to God's word. And they were convicted. They were grieving over that truth. And so they prayed to God. And by because of their prayer, and there's a famous quote, they say, what can... what we can do this if we will, if we would go amongst the nations and preach the Gospels. If we, we can, if we will. And they started the American Board for the Commissioners for the Foreign Mission. They were the first organization in America for international missions. Not the International Mission Board, not North American Mission Board, not some other mission organization that you may be aware of. But this Christian board started by these five young men started the first uh, missions organization in the United States. And the first, bap the first missionary to leave our shores was Adonai Judson, and he was a part of this prayer meeting. God had given them the wisdom that they needed to go and share the gospel to the nations. And if you do any history on Burma, that so many people came to know Christ because of the ministry of Adonai Judson and his family. God accomplished an impossible task through these, young, through these young men because they prayed. 
So Daniel is, is, is now confronted with this news that because he's a wise man, he's a magi, he's in the court, and because he is a part of this group that he is going to die. He is, him and his, his three friends are going to be killed. He even says here in verse, um, uh, verse 14, uh, reply with prudence and discretion to the, the, the captain of the king's uh, guard, uh, who had gone out to king the wise men of Babylon, he declared to uh, Iraq, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Why is he such in haste to kill everyone? Why is he so, uh, why is he so angry? Why is he so violent? So the, Daniel asked the king uh, for time to resolve the situation. He said, give me some time. He actually walked into the, into the court, tells the king, give me some time and I will solve your issue. I'll solve your situation. So Daniel went into his house. We see this in verse 17. He went into his house. He made the matter known to his three friends, his companions. Remember in chapter 1 that these men, these, these four friends who were in the court, who, who were given the food by Nebuchadnezzar, who restricted the food, who, who, who was resolved not to eat of the food of the king. But it, it was told when they were presented before the king, they were, the king said that they were ten times better or smarter than all the other wise men in the court. So these were the so Daniel and the three friends. They were elite. They knew more. They were more wise. They were they had more knowledge. The king even accredited him with this wisdom and knowledge. And even they were unable to answer the king's command on their own. None was found like these four men. But in every matter of wisdom and understanding of which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than all the scholars in all his kingdom. But obviously they were. They should be able to, uh, to solve the mystery, but even they weren't able to solve the mystery on their own. So what does Daniel do? He, he seeks the, the, the mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed, it says. I mean, they're scared. They're afraid that, hey, how are we supposed to tell the king his dream? We don't have any insight into, into what his dream is, and, and, and though, therefore we can't interpret it for him. So they prayed. The wise men were right. The magi in the court of Nebuchadnezzar were right. Only the gods could answer the king's commands. The problem was is Daniel and his friends were the only ones in the court, including the king, who knew the source of the wisdom to solve the king's mystery. Only they had access to the wisdom that they needed. The limits of, of humanity are put on display. Daniel and his friends, they know this truth. They know that they have limits. They know that they don't have the wisdom and the knowledge to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream, but they know to whom knows this wisdom. They pray to the one who has all wisdom and power to reveal the great mysteries of the troubled king. To them, the mystery is revealed. They pray to God, and God gives them the knowledge of this dream. They, God reveals the mystery to Daniel in a vision of the night. Wisdom and power of God in comparison to the wisdom and the power of the, of the great empire. I mean, the empire couldn't solve this task. The greatness of Babylon couldn't solve this task. Only God of the heaven could solve this task. And Daniel knows this and goes to God. The fourth point is the last few verses, the eternal kingdom. And so the dream is then given to Daniel. The, the, the interpretation is then given to Daniel. And the interesting thing about empires, now Babylon is not the greatest empire in the world, right? It wasn't, it wasn't the largest empire in the history of the world. Actually, the largest empire when it comes to land mass is the British Empire at one time. They're not that way anymore. 
have continued to continue to lose their empire slowly but slowly during the, the reign of Queen Elizabeth um, II. And, but the British Empire at, at, was at one point the largest empire in history. From at ni- in 1913, they had over 412 million people in their empire. Their land mass was 24%, that was 20, 23% of the world's population. They were in their empire. Uh, 24th of the earth's total land mass was a part of the British Empire. They had a famous quote that said, the empire of Britain on which the sun never sets. That's how vast their empire was. I mean, it went from corner to corner of the globe. And even there, uh, it talked about just the naval and imperial power of the British Empire. And empires can be known to kind of be uh, arrogant and think they're just so powerful and so perfect and so good. And, and so people are just lucky to be in their kingdom and in their empire. But none of these empires are eternal. Babylon eventually goes away. Persia eventually goes away. Greece eventually goes away. Rome eventually goes away. British Empire eventually goes away. Empires never last. Even Americans' dominance on the financial and military scale, it won't be forever. The, the thought that America will continue to be the richest nation in the world and the most powerful nation in the world is, is a fallacy. That's not going to always be so. Empires come and go. And that really is the, 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 the answer to the mystery, that empires do not last forever. Daniel was given a revelation of the future that kings and empires and kingdoms will come and go to be surpassed by others. So Nebuchadnezzar is just one monarch to be followed by others who mistakenly think they possess ultimate power and wisdom. Yet God is king. His kingdom is greater. And, and so, they ha- so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that a stone, and he sees the statue. He sees these, these, these different layers of the statue. And he sees a stone. And the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Now, I'm not going to get into all the different layers and what each layer means. We can talk about that uh, later. If you want to talk to me about that or you want to do your own study on that, we don't have time to go into all the different aspects of that. You may be disappointed. But I want you just to kind of get the big picture here that these kingdoms are going to crumble. And that's what brings trouble to Nebuchadnezzar. He sees that maybe his kingdom will, be, will go away. Because it even says that the parts are broken off and become like chaff, like wheat husk and dust that simply blows away. That these kingdoms are just going to be blown away. They're going to be dust that the wind carries away. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That you understand there's, a, there's another kingdom that is coming that is better and greater and eternal and it's going to obliterate all the other kingdoms. You see this impressive and, and imposing statue is blasted away. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces. All these kingdoms uh, bring them to an end and it shall stand His and God's kingdom and the eternal kingdom shall stand forever. And so you see this major theme that the sole source of power and wisdom is in God. And now God will establish His kingdom on earth. And we ask, well, how will this kingdom come? How will it be sent into the world? We know it will be better than these other kingdoms. It will be better than the Babylonians. It will be better than the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. It will be better than the British Empire. 
Its king will be greater than these kings. And what will his kingdom bring? You think about the other kingdoms of the world, these kingdoms, what do they bring? Well, they really what they brought was violence. They brought conquest. They brought greed. Not the ethics that are something that we would be welcoming. We don't want to welcome some kingdom that's just going to conquer us and, and kill us and take everything that we ever had and demoralize us and institutionalize us and to leave us with nothing like these other kingdoms did. But what does the kingdom of God bring? What does it what does it accomplish? What does it bring us? And we think about the characteristics of God's kingdom. And I just want to read a few verses here. Um, and I want to read Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to it, I just want to read this passage. because It gives us an understanding of what God's kingdom brings. Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right, so God's kingdom is bringing heavenly blessings. Not conquest, not death, not violence, but all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. He's bringing holiness and righteousness. He predestined us for adoption. This kingdom brings adoption as sons and daughters. Not death, not slavery, but adoption. Through Jesus Christ, in order to the purpose of his will, to praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us, blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption, not slavery, but redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished. Graces and riches are lavished on us. This is what his kingdom brings. That is a welcoming news. It troubled the king of Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, because his kingdom is abolished. His kingdom is taken away. His kingdom is turned into dust. That's thankfulness. That's a, that's a good thing. And God's kingdom shouldn't trouble us. It should bring us joy. It should bring us relief. It should bring us refuge and peace. Quickly, some just applications here about this. Is God, through prayer and meditation, a source of wisdom for you? I love that about Daniel. I mean, these guys were the best, man. They're ten times smarter than everybody else in the core. The king even says it. And when they're given this task, what do they do? They run off to pray. They run to pray. Not to go to their books, not to study harder, but to pray and to seek God's face because that's the source of wisdom. Where do you go for counsel? When life is confusing or anxiety has taken over, to whom do you cry out to? Do you have brothers and sisters in Christ to whom you pray with regularly? That's a question. This could be a truth, this could be a fact of the story that you overlook, that he didn't pray by himself either. He didn't, Daniel said, all right, this is my problem. I have to accomplish this on my own. He doesn't do that, does he? He runs to his three friends, his companions, and they pray together and seek God's face and his wisdom and his power. I don't know how often y'all go to growth group or small groups that we have or Bible studies that we have, but that's the source of prayer. Like if you have issues, don't pray that by yourself. Don't tell that to no one. Tell that to people. Go to growth groups. Go to small groups. Go to Bible studies and have other people pray for you. Pray with you. 
Pray together. Set an appointment with someone here. Like, don't leave today without setting up an appointment or a meeting with someone to sit down and, and have lunch or have coffee and pray together about what troubles you. Some, some issues in your life that you just don't have answers to and you're trying to figure it out on your own and you're not going to God who is the source of all wisdom and power. When was the last time you felt the urgency to pray? This is number three. Where you where you're desperately needed God's wisdom, right? When was the last time that happened? Where you, you had no answer. You couldn't rely on self-sufficiency. And I think the issue is, is that we really don't take any risks. We kind of lower our, our, our levels to kind of what we can handle, right? I can't handle that. I can't handle that. What you're doing, what you're saying is that you, are only, uh, you only can take on things that you're self-sufficient in. And you're unwilling to take risks. You're unwilling to put yourself in situations where you're actually dependent on the, the God of all wisdom and power. We seek comfort, not responsibility or involvement. We need to get to the point of being overwhelmed by the task so that we seek God's wisdom with urgency. I don't think overwhelmness is a bad thing. If you're overwhelmed with a responsibility, it doesn't mean you get rid of the responsibility, actually. What it means is that you pray to God for wisdom and power and knowledge in the situation. The last one is, how do you view politics today? How do you view politics today? Do you find it difficult to be hopeful in the current political situation? That's, an, that's, a, that's, a, that's a thought you should have. If you, if by the election, if you just literally couldn't get out of bed because you were so devastated by who got elected, or when November comes around in a few months, and, and say the Democrats or the, win, uh, win Congress again, are you like, I'm done. I can't get out of bed. I'm moving to Canada. Like, why aren't you able to handle what God is obviously sovereign over? He is powerful. He is in control. This story helps us understand that God is in power. He is sovereign over everything. He is the one moving history. And we should trust and be hopeful in His wisdom and His power in all situations. God is the means of wisdom and power. Not yourself, not your education, not institutions, but God is the source of wisdom and power. There's a, a great psalm, Psalms chapter 2. I love the end of it because it talks about the kings of the world. You know, you've, they, they want to throw off God. They want to throw off his, 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 his control and his, his leadership and his authority over kings and rulers. They want to do whatever they want. And, and God says in Psalms chapter 2, I'm sending my son. It's a great psalm, Psalms chapter 2. He said, I'm going to send my son. And he will have power. He will have a kingdom. And he's going to give all nations to him. And even, they even tell the kings, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the son. Then we may pass that over and go, well, that's kind of weird. Why would you kiss the son? What it's saying is, is you're, you're showing a sense of homage. That you're, be, you're bowing to him and say, you are far more superior than I and it's ludicrous for me to try to run away from you. It's ludicrous for me to try to rebel against you because you're full of power and wisdom and glory, and I want to give you homage. I want to show you my loyalty and my love for you. And it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I, I hope that you have life goals. I hope that you have life and vis visions. I hope you have aspirations in life. We've been talking about this on Tuesday, Tuesday night in our college Bible study about getting unstuck from productivity. 
I hope that you have goals. I hope you have aspirations. The problem with life goals and aspirations is how you accomplish them. Is it only through your self-sufficiency? Is it only through your talent and your wisdom? Or are you relying on God for its accomplishment? That is something that I have learned the hard way lately, is that I have aspirations, I have goals, I have things and responsibilities that I have to accomplish or God has put before me to accomplish. And too often I've tried to accomplish them on my own through self-sufficiency, and I'm not very good at it. That I have to be like Daniel. I have to run to the wisdom of God, run to where wisdom is and pray Uh, to God for wisdom. Pray with others for wisdom, that God would give you wisdom. Trust in Christ and trust that by trusting Christ that, yeah, you'll have issues at work. You'll have issues in your relationships, but you'll you'll get wisdom. You'll be given wisdom by your trust in Christ. So I just want to encourage you, pray to God. Don't rely on yourself. Rely on the wisdom of God. And even if you have impossible tasks, even if you have responsibilities that are completely overwhelming, that God will give you the wisdom to accomplish those tasks in a godly way. Let's pray.